solving the productivity puzzle. I'm sure we will have solved it by the end of the session. We have a very prestigious panel uh, here today. I'm delighted to welcome uh, our keynote to first, which is uh, Jan Mischke, who is with the McKinsey Global Institute, who's produced a very uh, lengthy and very interesting report lately on exactly this issue. And we are delighted that he's agreed to come and, and present the main results of this. And, and after that, we will have a discussion with experts on, on, um, on this issue. Um, first, uh, on my right, I have Dick Pilat, who is the Deputy Director at the Director for Science, Technology and Innovation at the OECD, an institution that is working very much on this, uh, on this issue, and we are delighted that uh, you joined us for this today. On my left, uh, Janet Hendrick, who is the Global Chief Economist at HSBC, also working on global issues, will give us more of a macro perspective on, on, on exactly the productivity and its puzzle. And, uh, and uh, last and certainly not least, our very own Renhita Wechelers, who is a senior fellow here at Bruegel and a professor in uh, Leuven. Thank you very much for, for joining us. And I, we have an hour and a half. So, um, Jan, if you take about 15 to 20 minutes uh, for uh, your presentation and your main, main, main ideas, and then I will ask the panelists to give us a few thoughts, two or three thoughts in maybe uh, five to six minutes, because I would like to have also a discussion between the panelists, but also with our audience. So with that, uh, Jan, uh, the floor is yours. So thank you very much, uh, Maria, for the introduction. And it's a, it's a great pleasure and honor to be here today um, and speak about productivity, or more precisely, the slump in labor productivity growth across the US and Europe. Um, and um, maybe up front, a few key learnings that we found when we, when we did this work. So, First, there's a really easy way how countries can avoid a big slump in labor productivity growth. And that is by kind of just not starting to grow it in the first place, like Italy. Okay. So, on a more serious note, um, there's actually two things that we would like to emphasize, two Ds. It's demand and it's digital. Those, in our view, have been the key contributors to the decline and are the key aspects of focus to bring it back up. To get it a bit into, into more details and start with the overall picture, I think many of you are broadly aware with, with some aspects of it. This is productivity, and we use labor productivity growth throughout this piece of work across the US. And for Europe, we actually focus on Germany, the UK, France, Spain, Italy, and Sweden as sample countries. So across those countries, the pattern of labor productivity growth over the last century or so. Lots of ups and downs and so on. Of course, discussions, shouldn't we be in a world like Europe in the 50s and 60s, where we were at like 5 or 6% annual labor productivity growth? Not what we are focusing on here. We are more dealing with what happened with the more recent slum since about the mid-2000s, 2004, 2005, was the turning point in the US, uh, where we saw across countries on average about a 2 percentage point slump and labor productivity growth, and are now still in a period of persistent near-zero productivity growth. And this, this near-zero pattern here seems so much at odds with all we see going on in terms of digitization, artificial intelligence, business model changes, efficiencies of companies. So somehow there's, there, there's some discrepancy here. So what is behind? quickly start off a bit more broadly, there's lots of schools of thoughts of what's going on. There's no shortage of schools of thoughts. Uh, we tried to look at many of them uh, to an extent. We come to digital and demand being the bigger ones, but maybe to briefly comment on some of those. 
So mismeasurement, a huge issue. Well, we all know it. Probably getting worse, even though this is already where people get a bit divided on whether it's getting worse or not. But we see evidence of real productivity growth declines, so we don't look into mismeasurement any further. We stuck, stick with what is really real and, and observable. Mixture to low productivity sector is about a 0.2 to 0.3 percentage point drag on productivity growth for the last 10 years, for the last 30 years, for the last 60 years. It didn't get worse. It doesn't explain the decline. Um, Techno-pessimism, really? Um, and then increasing business concentration. Uh, that's, that's an interesting one because that is a fact, particularly in the US. It is an issue for all kinds of reasons. It is not yet an issue for productivity growth. Even in the opposite, if you look at examples, automotive industry, tier two and tier three suppliers have been consolidating over the last decade or so, and that is a boon to productivity. They professionalize growth, globalize, export, and become more productive. And then I actually assume, so I will cover the other ones a bit more in the, in the wave that I'm going to cover, but I, I assume we will also hear on some of them from the other panelists. So what is our view? What has, what has explained the decline? Roughly two percentage points down. And we see it, the decline in essentially two waves. One percentage point happened before the crisis, 2004-2005-ish, and that was essentially a waning of a big boom driven by ICT. I'll get into that. And then a little bit of a restructuring and offshoring boom that also waned and came to an end. And then another roughly percentage point is from financial crisis after effects, which in many ways is all kinds of shapes and flavors of demand and uncertainty that have caused overcapacity, rehiring, or more radical boom-bust patterns like in, in the financial sector. And then the third wave is about more what's going on now and will happen going forward, which is digitization, or the next wave of digitization, I should say. Those waves are different across countries. So you see particularly countries like the US and Sweden, which actually had a lot of ICT-driven boom. They have, that has reverted very strongly, so they have been exposed a lot to this first wave. Whereas the second wave of the financial crisis has been much more broad-based and affected most countries in, in sync. There's also, of course, different flavors. The UK very exposed to boom bust of the financial sector. France, for some reason, uh, has worked through the crisis more on the labor market side than on the productivity side. So some, some differences, but a relatively broad pattern. So what is behind the three waves? So on the first wave, labor productivity and ICT sector was one of the key contributors to this decline there, has moved at double-digit rates for quite some time. And we usually compare here 2000 to 2004 averages so pre-crisis averaged across five years, to 2010 to 2014, so post-crisis again averaged. And that has essentially collapsed. And what was behind the double-digit growth rate was mostly processing power, memory capacity doubling every year. We all on our PCs, we all enjoyed it, we liked it, we bought new ones every year. And now we have these things, who knows what the processing power here is? I don't know, I do know what the battery life is, and I do know that the battery doesn't follow Moore's law. And I also know that the chips that still do follow Moore's law are imported from China versus the R&D happening on the West Coast is not subject to what economists call hedonic deflators, so it's not kind of measured with the same productivity increases anymore. So 
These are some of the shifts that have caused the decline in, in, in that first phase. Then the second wave, and that is mostly post-crisis, so 2008, 2009, 2010 type of period. That, in our view, is mostly one linking to demand and investment. So you see it quite drastically here with the decline in uh, capital intensity growth. So the capital employed per worker, or the capital services derived per worker, in Europe and in the US are essentially near one century lows. You can look at World War II and the Great Depression, and then this is where last time you've seen rates so low. So essentially, corporate investment collapsed, corporate savings went up, residential investment after the housing boom collapsed, and to make matters worse, public investment also collapsed. And you can all judge for yourself whether that was a good idea or not. So capital intensity growth really low. What is behind that low capital intensity growth? Now on the business side, we actually surveyed companies. Why have you reduced investment? Why have you increased savings? A long, long list of potential answers, but the, the key ones that stick out is there isn't more demand that we would need to increase our capacity or invest for. And the second aspect, all flavors of uncertainty. Political uncertainty, regulatory uncertainty, risk of another financial crisis, economic uncertainty, geopolitical tensions, you name it. So demand and uncertainty that have driven investment back and savings up. And then actually also, if you go very far down the list, somewhere number 12 or so of the explanations, you also find constraints in the cost of capital and uh, access to finan financing. So that is usually also one of the areas that has been highlighted. It is actually a very important aspect if you look right after the crisis, and it's still an important aspect in some pockets of geography and SMEs in Italy and Spain and so on, uh, but probably not among the bigger economies, uh, country, companies now. There's other ways how the weakness in demand impacted productivity. As one example, when we looked at, we looked actually in very much detail at six sectors across those economies. One is the utilities or energy sector, which is also a big contributor to the decline productivity growth. Following the crisis, energy consumption went down with the economic slump, but also overlaid with all the very valuable attempts to conserve energy or to to use less energy, become more energy efficient, less carbon intense. In that sector, 60% of labor is in the grid. If you use less energy, you have less volume, less value-added measured, but you can't scale back the grid resources by even 1%. So we have scale effects in, uh, in productivity, and we see them actually also, you might know more about that in, in financing. Loan volumes in the UK pre-crisis grew by 12% a year. That stopped. Roughly 0% maybe picking up now, I don't know. Uh, but I guess you were also not able to scale back the resourcing in line with that because you still have the assets, the mortgages, everything on your books, you have to manage it. So lots of industries where scale effects matter. Um, and also maybe to, to give one more flavor of how demand drives or has driven productivity, it's the shape of consumption and the shape of demand. As one example, automotive sector. 
the automotive sector, there was a huge shift a decade ago or so to premium vehicles and SUVs. Those are more labor-intensive to produce, but they have also disproportionately more value in the eyes of the consumer. So actually that shift boosted labor productivity by about 05 to 0.6% a year in the sector, and that shift has slowed down. That boost is no longer. So various flavors and forms here on the demand side. And then the first wave, third wave on the way forward on digitization. Why do we see digitization everywhere? But it, productivity growth hasn't picked up yet. Is that all mismeasurement? No, it's actually not mismeasurement. And it's also not technology that these technologies are irrelevant and will never boost productivity. But it's two other effects. It's on the one hand lag effects, and that's probably most pronounced. If you look at online retail versus store-based retail, and this is effectively looking at Amazon versus Walmart, so today's leader versus essentially tomorrow's leader, if you will, there's a factor 2x in productivity growth, or in productivity levels. So there's a huge difference. There's a huge upward potential, but it's still only about 5 to 10% share of online in sales. So we are still relatively early in the adoption curve. Give it a few years, and the impact will be roughly one percentage point contribution just from the shift to online every year in the retail sector. But there's a second effect that is as important, and that is the transition as we move towards digital business models, where there can be an actual drag on productivity. So to stick with the retail example, while online retailers are gaining market shares, offline retailers are losing market shares, are losing footfall in their stores, but they can't close them down. They can't release the staff and so on. So they actually see a drag, and you see similar patterns emerging across industries that incumbents for some time get attacked, and that is actually a drag on productivity. They have to invest in new ideas, business models, operations without being able to close down other aspects. And then at some form, banks will close all their branches probably, and will have that about 60% less resourcing for the same output, but not just yet. So, with that in mind, where does that leave us in terms of the outlook and priorities of what to do? So first, in terms of the potential, particularly looking at the supply side of the economy, we're actually quite optimistic. We see a a good kind of, say, base level of productivity growth around a percentage point from just continuing operational improvements, uh, say, consolidation of small firms in construction uh, or in retail and so on. And another about percentage point or so opportunity on top from continuing and accelerating digitization and adoption of digital business models. So that leaves us actually with a two-plus percentage point each year opportunity, which would be quite high by historical standards. Quite positive or optimistic outlook in terms of the potential. Where we have more question marks, and, but wouldn't pretend to have full evidence how it's going to play out, so I would call it more question marks, is what is happening on the demand side. So surely economic growth is back. Um, output gaps have been closing, investment is picking up, we're really leaving the financial crisis in many many ways behind us, so it's not necessarily a bad picture now, it looks, looks all going up. Uh, but there are a few question marks on the long term 
patterns of where consumption and investment as, as drivers of demand go. So and I'll just highlight a few of them. The rising inequality. If you take the US as an example, consumption would be about 2.5% higher today if we still had the income distribution of the 1980s. That is because income has been shifting to those strata of the population that have a very low propensity to consume. They don't spend it. Similarly, of course, declining labor share of income, about four to five percentage points over that period, for instance, in the US. Much more of the economic returns go to, go to capital, which will be a drag on consumption in, uh, in some form. Or looking at investment, um, not only has investment collapsed after the crisis, but there actually has been a long-term declining trend. If you look at net fixed capital formation rates, so kind of net investment as share of GDP, those have declined by about five percentage points across pretty much any of the countries in our sample over the last 30 years, on a pretty slow and steady decline path. Five percentage points of GDP, as is huge, partially links to consumption, it partially links to aging, it partially actually also links to effects like rising depreciation of, of investment items like software and so on. Won't get too much into the details, but there is actually reasons to believe that investment might be weak at a time when consumption is also weak, which is not a good combination. And if we look ahead in terms of digitization, where digitization is claimed to increase, and we actually believe that's true, it's claimed to increase inequality, it's claimed to decrease and depress the labor share of income, and is relatively capital light in many forms. So there is a reason for concern that these patterns might accelerate rate rather than reverse course. So if you believe in this diagnosis, what to do? Well, two priorities for action. Accelerating the digital diffusion. So innovation also, yes, that will continue, but it's actually happening at a good pace. It's more the diffusion that is causing the lag effects and the transitionary effects and so on. And it's ensuring that demand, including particularly investment, remains robust or will become robust. And to highlight a few examples within those action areas, the digital diffusion, so governments can lead by example with their own digitization that would not only be good for economies, but also for all of us as citizens experiencing better citizen service. Um, infrastructure, but actually mostly important, most importantly, soft infrastructures so ecosystems, digital identities, cybersecurity formats, and the like. Um, but also, not to forget, critically monitor what's happening with platform economies and monopolies potentially building in that aspect and, and changing competition. So there's also an, a warning sign there on, on competition. And then on demand and investment, so productive public investment, why scale it back? At particularly these times when we all see the infrastructure gaps. Unlocking private investment, and let me highlight one area here, housing and land markets. For about 30 to 40 years since Thatcher and Reagan, we have gone through liberalization of economies, products, and labor markets. Probably has gone even too far in many regards. No one has touched land markets. Huge area of and then make sure that actually those people who would spend have the means to spend. Thank you very much.
So may I ask, uh, uh, Dirk, if you could give us your uh, priorities on the issues that, uh, that we heard from Jan. Sure. Now, I, first to say that um, very good to see this piece of work. I mean, this is a topic which we are currently doing quite a lot of work on at the OECD as well. I think uh, we're all trying to figure out, well, why do we not yet see the impacts of digital economy on productivity, and, and why has it slowed down so much? So I, I think a lot of agreement, actually, from my side to... Uh, to, to what uh, the McKinsey work is, is doing. I, I, I think I'll probably, uh, particularly I, I think I like to focus on the demand side, which I think is important, which you don't always see that much in the discussion. I have four quick points. Um, I'll do one more than three. Um, first to say a little bit about, about we're trying to do some work, uh, trying to understand well better what's happening in productivity by looking at the firm level, because I think in the end, aggregate productivity growth is very much sort of the sum of all the, the individual sort of firms in, increasing productivity. Uh, and what we are seeing there, and what's interesting, there hasn't really been a productivity decline if you look to some of the leaders in, in, in the economy. Some of those firms have basically been doing very well, uh, even, uh, even during the crisis, they've, they've, they've done extremely well. What hap has happened in many countries is basically that we've seen a really a decline that all the rest of the economy has fallen behind. And, and I think that raises concerns, basically, because, well, the question then is a little bit, will we only see those leaders sort of also doing extremely well with, with, with digital, or will we see a more broad-based diffusion of this technology and also what it means for productivity across the economy? So I think that's an issue uh, which we need to understand a little bit better. Um, in that context, I think there are a couple of things which I, I, I think you rightly emphasize the focus on diffusion. Uh, I think what we are seeing also in the data, that we talk about artificial intelligence, we talk about big data, but at the moment it's a very small group of firms, many large firms that are using big data, that are using, using artificial intelligence, and a couple of startup firms. So it's a very still a limited group of firms that are sort of using some of those most advanced technologies. And I think that means as well that we're not likely to, to, we shouldn't expect too much from that straight away. Yes, we, we should see it in those firms like Amazon, like others, but we probably won't see it that quickly yet at the aggregate level unless this really spreads a lot more, more, more widely. Um, I think we're seeing that also if we look across sectors of the economy. There are many sectors of the economy where the digital intensity of the economy is still quite low. I think if you're looking at a construction sector, even if you're looking at transport at the moment, there are quite a few sectors of the economy where things, the potential is there, but it is not moving that quickly yet. So I think we, we, we need to look at that as well. And my third point is, I think we are sometimes talking a little bit too much about the technology because I think the technology is the tool, uh, but if you're looking at how firms are implementing this, there's a lot of other things that are happening within firms. There's a lot happening in terms of organizational changes. There's a lot happening in terms of process innovation. There's a lot <coughs> happening in giving people different skills in terms of introducing new business models, and that part is a lot harder and introducing the technology itself. So I, I think that's the other part which I think we're, we're not focusing enough on, and that's also where the diffusion is a lot harder. It's much easier to basically sort of buy a piece of software or buy a piece of, of, of computer equipment than actually to learn how to use that within a specific context and to do all the sort of the organizational change and process innovation that you need to, to do to make that work. Uh, so I think that's, that's where I think we need to focus on a little bit, bit, bit more. 
Um, my, my second point is is a little bit, I think, and what's probably a little bit missing. I think you, you spoke about about, about uh, gaining market share. Um, I think one of the difficulties we see, particularly in a European context, is that we do have a lot of really good startup companies, but they don't scale. They, you know, you have great companies in Europe, in European context, which are digital, which are digitally intensive. Uh, we have a lot of good companies at the moment coming through in artificial intelligence as well, but they don't grow enough. And the own, one of the big ways a technology really has an impact in the economy is if the firms that really use these technologies gain market share of the firms that are not so good in, 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 in doing that. And we see in a lot of the OECD countries that there is a little bit of a stagnation in business dynamism. Things are not moving quickly enough. Uh, the incumbents, the existing firms are sometimes fighting back. There's lobbying going on. Regulations don't move very quickly. And that means sometimes we don't see those, those, that reallocation within the economy that we probably need to, to, to see. Um, so, so I think that's a, that's, a, that's a second point. Let me, me get uh, very briefly, I think you, you focused on measurement. You, you mentioned measurement. I think that's another area where probably we need to do more on uh, to, to really better understand, well, is this all a statistical illusion or is something really going on? I think there is something really going on, but we need to understand it better. My only criticism of your paper is I think you're trying to be a little bit too precise in terms of what the different role of different factors is. Productivity is a very complex phenomenon. In the end, it's basically the part of growth that we don't understand because of the inputs of, 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 of labor and capital. Uh, and then to say, well, this is 0.5%, this is 0.3%, I just don't think we know that enough. I think it's important to put some numbers on it, but I think we need to be sort of a little bit sensitive in, in terms of how we do that. My final point is on the policy issues, because I, I agree in many of the things you, you said. I think our, our, our focus is probably on the same issues. I think the investment focus, the diffusion focus, those are all very important. Um, I, I mentioned three things where perhaps I think we need a bit more emphasis. First, saying it's not only about the diffusion of technology. I think it's also about diffusion of good practices, of basically management to some extent plays a role. Uh, organizational factors, they play a role, and they're a lot harder to diffuse than the technology itself. My second point on policy is this issue of structural change, of resource allocation. I think that's also where, at a policy level, probably more needs to happen. We've seen a bit of a slowdown in structural change in, in, in many OECD economies. We probably need to do more on that. And my final point is, I think, on the regulatory side, I think that's, that's really important. Uh, technology allows things to be done in a different way allows things to be done in a different way in many sectors of the economy where we never had scope for competition, where we never had scope for new business models. And now it's opening up or enabling changes in many parts of the economy, but our regulations, our structural policies are not always keeping track with that. So I think there as well, there is scope to, to do a little bit more. So those are a couple of points. So only one real criticism, which is on not trying to be too precise on, on the numbers. Uh, thank you very much, Nick. But if I may quickly then ask, you mentioned the issue of scaling. Um, what is at the, at the problem of scaling if you compare the, the Europe to the US, for yeah. example? Where is the, sort of the main thing that you should invest our, our, our efforts in trying to change? Or is it just culture? Well, there is, there is one thing, I think, which we've been speaking about in the European context for a very long time, which is a single market, a, a, a really complete single market, particularly at a digital level. Uh, you know, if you are a, a, a potential platform firm and if you're looking at scaling in Europe, 
Even if you do it in a German market, you have 80 million potential customers, and then you need to look at other regulations across different other countries. If you can do that in the US, you have 350 million customers. If you do it in China, you have 1.3 million customers. So that means to some extent that a lot of firms very quickly say, well, perhaps the US market is a better place to scale. And, and then there are other issues. There's, I mean, the venture capital market, other types of things where probably Europe can do, can do better. Uh, but I think that point of single market is still, to me, one of the things where Europe can really make a difference. Interesting, interesting point. Thank you very much. Um, can I turn to you then, uh, John, if you, give, if you can give us your view on sort of some of the macroeconomic implications of, uh, of the micro characteristics that uh, Jan and uh, Dirk talked about. Sure. Uh, this is working, yes. Okay, uh, good afternoon, everyone. Actually, you've stimulated so much, I, I, I really don't know where to start, but I'm just going to make a few observations that I think are really important um, at the macro level, because you both touched on the idea that, you know, if you work from the firm level or you look within sectors, there are apparent areas um, of dynamism. And obviously, as a macroeconomist looking at the world, it's always about the law of averages. And I think this is the difficulty we face. And you in particular touched on the retail sector. And it's quite interesting, you know, a lot of the work that I've done um, comparing productivity in the late 1990s with the last five years, uh, which have been dramatically different. Interestingly enough, the average in the retail sector is that actually this time around, the retail sector has been an outperformer even though you've had this huge drag from the store-based and the lack of depletion of labor, et cetera, it is still an outperformer. So even in some of those sectors where you've got this dramatic labor market disruption for a number of factors, a lot of them relating to technology, um, it still is having um, a macroeconomic um, impact. But also, Dirk, you mentioned it in the context of some of the work that you've done at the OECD, and I thought the paper that you did, or, or your, your colleagues did, on the, um, the average productivity in a country like Italy, where the top 5% of frontier firms have actually got really quite strong productivity, but are weighed down by some of the other firms was really interesting. And I think it's just a reminder that we are still suffering from a legacy of the financial crisis, because a lot of this is still a hangover from the lack of foreclosure by banks because of the various issues relating to, um, to bank recapitalization. Um, but I also wanted to make the point, and again, it, it partly relates to the measurement issue, and it always comes up to the issue of how do we measure well-being? How do we measure GDP? Is it still an appropriate measure? Is productivity an appropriate measure? And actually, we touched on it to some degree with, with your mobile phone, and how do you measure the, um, the advancements in that um, on the pricing side? Because some of the companies that we now see evidence of using technologies, it's not just the large firms. You know, in particular, I, I, I know of a company, a robot company that makes mobile makes um, artificial limbs for children who've had amputations or are born without limbs now these are five-year-old children and it used to take two years or you know three months it used to take to make an artificial hand for someone and it cost tens of thousands of pounds so they didn't make them because in three months time that five-year-old child had grown now you have a situation where they do a 3D scan, they put it into their 3D print, and they can make it in two days. And academic institutions all over the world can download the, the software. It's all open source. They can modify, you know, modify them. They've got open source arrangements. George Lucas gave them the license for Star Wars hands or frozen hands. And you know, a five-year-old child being able to suddenly throw a ball 
you can't measure the well-being or the productivity because it doesn't have a monetary value associated with it. And I think, you know, that's... <laughs> It raises a whole load of broader issues that we're probably not going to have time to get into. But then I just wanted to just extend the debate a little bit. Yeah, and I think probably all of your work related to the US and Europe, I think you were quite clear um, on some of that. But I think there is also an issue of um, global um, productivity growth. And at the most macro level, I think we probably do need to mention um, China um, because of the impact um, on inflation. I think a lot of the debate in the West is that this has been a very job-rich but productivity-poor recovery. I would argue that one of the reasons it's been such a job-rich recovery is because labor has been so cheap. You didn't really mention that in your arguments as to why investment spending has been so weak. So I think if we do see signs that wage growth is picking up, that will be an incentive for companies to start investing a little bit more and the labor productivity numbers in some of those sectors will probably improve a little bit more. Um, but I would also argue that, that China's longer term disinflationary influence on the world hasn't necessarily run its course just because we've used up all of the cheap labor. Because if you look at some of the proposals coming out of China in terms of their uh, China 2025 industrial strategy and their plans for robotization just by 2020, I mean, if the numbers that, you know, the Bruegel numbers in that excellent paper on robotics recently, which um, measured that for every additional 10 robots per 10,000 workers, that lowered the employment to population ratio, I think, by up to 0.2% of GDP. Well, China's planning to raise its number of industrial robots from 68 to 150 by 2020 in the space of three or four years. So it will be about the, the productivity element of that, but also the broader global disinflationary impacts if, if the next stage of China's growth on the productivity side extends in the way that they expect it to. Because if you look at China's productivity growth in the last decade, it's been very rapid, but it's still only 25% of the level. Um, in the US. So I should probably stop there. No, but um, yes. <laughs> well, no, but no my, my, my point is being that um, there's still plenty of scope for catch up just by absorbing a lot of the technologies that we are already using um, in the West. It's just that the way that they are putting it into place. You know, it's not just that the China wants kind of to be the, the tech supremo. Um, the fact is China's facing demographic challenges. China's been very dependent on credit growth. And their industrial strategy now is about using a lot of technology and technological components and tech components that are produced in, in North Asia. Japan is obviously at the, the leader of forefront of a lot of these broader issues. Um, that could also come through in, in, from the US and, and Germany in particular, you would expect be a beneficiary of that. Thank you very much, John. There's a lot of very interesting thoughts. I particularly like the, the leak you say that if we're mismeasuring productivity, we're probably mismeasuring growth too. And if we were to solve one, maybe we should be solving the other at the same time. And, and, and in that respect, if Jan's numbers are correct, then our, our estimate of growth could be even better than, than what it is today, right? I mean, I think that's that, that remains to be seen, but it's interesting an interesting thought. And, and of course, a lot on China, but I'm sure we can come back to the issue of China. And Ryan Hilda will, will probably have something to say here. Um, but, but perhaps we go straight to uh, your comments, Ryan Hilda. We have a little bit of time, and then we can have an extra uh, round off uh, between us before we open the floor. So, Ryan Hilda. Yeah. 
Yeah, this works. Um, of course, being the last means it's much more difficult to come up with new stuff uh, here. Um, but actually, indeed, I was I was wanting to raise the issue of the, the missing elephant or dragon or panda bear in the room here, which is uh, China and East Asia in your analysis. It's important both on the demand side because it's, it's a very important source of, of, of uh, increase in demand, uh, but also on the supply side, it is increasingly important source for our companies for knowledge and innovation because it's really rising as a science power. It's also training a lot of STEM profiles uh, here massively. Um, and thirdly, it's also important uh, on the global competition arena here with Chinese firms managing really to move to the innovation frontier. And this holds particularly in, in some targeted areas where China can easily jump um, uh, to the frontier, often also supported by policy. Uh, and digital AI is one of those examples but also electric cars here. So I was wondering to which extent um, the first digital wave that you described was EU competing with the US and, and losing it uh, or missing it. But now we have a different player uh, in the room and, and China is a different player. The role of the state, of course, the long-term uh, planning, uh, but also lots of new players, new companies uh, in the game here. And what's particularly impressive is the speed of the rise uh, here with which they are doing this. So my question is to which extent will the next Next wave, will that still look like the first wave? Uh, and I think it's not, uh, because we have this new Chinese player for the third wave uh, here. Um, so it's no longer did we miss it, did the EU miss it relative to the US, it now will be are we going to miss it relative to not only the US but uh, probably uh, also uh, to China uh, here. Uh, so that's my first point. <laughs> Second point is, uh, can we nevertheless still learn from the first wave? So why did the EU miss relative to the US? Um, and, and is that something that uh, will also still uh, hurt us when we are now in, in the third uh, wave uh, having to miss it again with not only the US but, but China here. And I think a lot of analysis, yours included, but also like from the OECD, also our own work, shows that an important part, part of why we missed it, the first digital wave is that we were basically missing this creative destruction uh, capacity here because we didn't, we, we are very careful in, in avoiding destruction here and that's why we don't create enough room for the creative part uh, here. So we, Europe is much more specialized in going for incumbent incremental improvements, uh, both in, in its existing large companies but also in its SMEs uh, structures uh, here, rather than going for the new firms, the new markets, uh, the new entrepreneurial drastic uh, disruptors. As a big advantage that we will be much more stable relative to, to, to the US here, uh, so less turbulent, but also less unequal uh, here. So the concentration that you are matching, increasing concentration, that's something that's particularly going on in the US and particularly in, in digital here. Other research, like for instance by Philippon, has shown that in Europe the concentration is lower and is not uh, uh, increasing here. So it's really concentrated, this concentration in particularly uh, digital sectors uh, here. We also looked at it from the innovation perspective. So also there we see that in Europe the, the, the concentration is of course high in innovation, but it's decreasing. It's not increasing here, but it's basically because we are not strong enough in the digital where most of that uh, increase uh, is taking place here. So overall, I do think that this third wave uh, is something that's really going to be a challenge for Europe because of the new players and also because actually we still didn't really address what was going, what 
killed us in the first wave uh, here. Um, and that's why I was a bit surprised that your policy recommendations, I think, are a bit too incremental. <laughs> incremental to relative what we already have uh, on the floor here to really address, I think, the challenges which are way uh, bigger uh, here. Um, and I think also, like, like uh, Dirk was saying, what's really very Regulation, competition policy uh, here, particularly regu regulation that creates a much more single and open uh, market um, for, for Europe. That's important to get the demand um, side working as an incentive for innovation uh, here, but it's also important to be able to develop capabilities at a much larger scale uh, here. So your recommendations on, on regulation are too much focused only on digital, and it's actually, it should be a single open market in all the digital using sectors as well, which is basically almost all sectors uh, here. So it's not just only looking at the regulatory agenda with and, and, and competition policy agenda in the in the digital sectors here, but it's it's much more larger scale than than, um, than what you are proposing. Uh, I think so. Overall, uh, I think we need to, to uh, really get one step further if we want to win or, or have a chance in the third wave uh, as well. Okay, uh, wonderful. Thank you very much, Javier, and also for commenting on the policy recommendations because I think that's very interesting. It's a very interesting thing to know what to do or like how do you meet all these challenges. Jan, would you, would you like to react to any of the comments that uh, our panelists uh, raised? Or? Maybe I can just um, react to, to a few, I think, fantastic comments. I actually agree with pretty much anything any of you three said, so I think we are, we are in, in strong agreement there. And just maybe to, um, to highlight some of those points more and bring them back also with what we've seen into, in, in, in this piece of research, um, if you think about the, uh, the policy recommendations and the digitization and so on, I think you mentioned we need to think much more broad than just looking at the ICT sector, also the entire uh, part of the adoption. You mentioned the business model changes that are needed, mentioned the example of construction. That is, for instance, one sector that we looked at in, in a lot of detail. Uh, construction sector has about 60% productivity opportunity from digital over the next 10 years. So that's a big number. Um, I did talk probably to about 60 to 70 or so CEOs of big construction firms. Um, they are all very nervous about what's happening. Um, most of them are not doing much. And that is not for lack of technology. I have all the kind of BIM model providers and so on out there who provide digital twins of construction sites which would allow them to have fully integrated supply chains from industry 4.0 factories who make custom-made windows that really fit what is on site and the building to be refurbished, just-in-time delivery, it, um, resources steered on site with egg pipes to put it right in, no rework and so on. All those things are there, the demonstration sites are there and so on. But the reality is, and that comes back to what I maybe have been too high level talking about transition cost and so on, which also links back to incentives, is all those CEOs sit there and know, if I do all that, the first thing that will happen is that I lose revenues. In addition, have big risks in the transition. And I can't find the skills to actually implement those things. So they are either not moving or not moving at the speed that they should move. And that has much more to do with industry structure and good old school type of things than technology and, and adoption. Um, 
So in that sense, trust me, I kind of give, give some more uh, flavor where, where I agree there, and that, that, that I, I surely agree. And then I think if you, if you look at the, uh, the role of, of Asia and China, um, I think it is, it is certainly a very important driver. It's certainly a very important driver, what happens on the demand side, what happens to labor cost, and so on. Um, I'm actually not sure how strong a role vis-a-vis -vis technology. I think it's difficult to say which, I think technology plays a stronger role, but um, to again highlight one example from, from retail, you made it, made, mentioned the investment that is not going up because we have all this cheap labor. Well, if you go to Switzerland where I live, uh, pretty much all retailers now have automated checkouts because a retail cashier gets $4,000 a month, so you get away with him and put a checkout. If you go to the US, you do not, because they get $7 an hour and they pack the things into the bags. So why would you put an automated checkout? They are essentially free, free labor. So they don't. So it's exactly these kind of trade-offs that, um, that are happening or not happening on the ground. And, and maybe one, one third aspect that, that relates to the winning of the race um, and how to scale up uh, also on the supply side, the supply side of, of, of Asia as competitors, well, one thing we, we discussed also earlier, uh, also in terms of bold policies, the reality, whether we like it or not, in terms of big um, digital innovations coming out these days, is that those are driven essentially by less than 10 firms globally. They are either doing them, or backing them, or buying them up once they have happened. There's essentially 10 firms on this planet. None of them is in Europe. And I leave it up to everyone to think about what we can change there. Uh, can, I, uh, can I bring two issues that perhaps you can come because they link to the discussion on productivity. And the first one is, particularly if you're talking about the digital era, the issue of taxation, the uncertainty of how we're going to tax services that are being that are digital. How, what is that going to do? First, the uncertainty of how we're going to do it, and then when we do it, in whichever way we do it, how is that going to move incentives? That's one. And the other one, which is very much in discussion right now, is the issue of protectionism. You know, you're talking about scaling up in an environment where actually they're going the other way. If we're going to be closing down, and the scaling up has nowhere to go. Um, I mean, it's a threat for the moment, and I hope it remains only just a threat. But, but it's, a, it's a real one, and there is tendencies that may produce very real disincentives for, uh, for, uh, for innovation. Um, any comments on that, in particular on the macro side, huh? because that's actually that's actually where this is played out, both the taxing and like the threat of protectionism. I'll let someone else take the taxation one. Uh, but um, on, on the trade side, I mean, I think that the points that I made um, on China um, are obviously important. I mean, at the moment, it looks like we're going to get some kind of near-term partial um, resolution, or at least temporary resolution, um, on the US-China side. Uh, but obviously, given the concerns about um, intellectual property breaches regarding China uh, and trade flows and China's ambitions even in the robotic sphere, um, I think, you know, the impact could be quite meaningful um, if it is implemented. You know, to give you an idea of the, of the robotization um, of China that I discussed, and a lot of it is imminent, uh, what, what China is planning to do, in fact, um, you know, which is... Uh, you know, even last year, 
Um, China kind of bought more, more robots or more robots were sold in China than in all of the US and Europe um, combined. And about a third of them were produced in China, but a lot of those components um, came um, from elsewhere. So it, it could be, you know, we always tend to look at the bilateral flows, but the supply chain impact um, elsewhere through Japan, Korea, Taiwan, Germany, Sweden, US, um, indirectly, even if it's just a tiny component for some of those robots um, that are needing to be built, and that's just one example, would be quite, um, would be quite meaningful. Um, but we you know, haven't made any attempt to try to quantify what the supply chain impact would be. Yeah. 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 Perhaps just. Um, I hope it works now. Um, just two two things. First, I think on, on the tech side. I mean, we have a big project at the OECD which is called Base Erosion Profit Shifting. This is basically it's called acronym BEPS, um, and that is really looking working across countries. It's also linked to G20 work to try and basically well, how do you deal with tax in the global world at the moment, and particularly how do you tax companies digital, I mean there's a focus there as well on digital uh, taxation. Uh, I think the big difficulty we have at the moment, we don't know really always where value is being created. We don't know, you know, if you are uh, a global firm, where exactly, and particularly as a digital firm, where is the value being created? So there's a lot of focus on trying to understand that and see whether we're we can get some agreement across countries on how we deal with that. It's a, it's, it's a challenging issue, but there's a lot of work on that. The, the other issue I wanted to mention, your, your focus on protectionism, um, I think also the digital economy raises quite a lot of issues, new issues for, for trade. I mean, it raises new issues because uh, we can now trade in ways which were previously impossible. Uh, we can now, I mean, there's a lot of discussion on data, on flows of data across countries, but also we can trade lots of services in digital ways. Um, and I think still our trade policies in certain ways are still catching up with that because it leads to new issues. It leads to new issues that are on the agenda. So uh, next week we have a ministerial meeting at the OECD and, and well, a lot of the focus there will also be on how to, we can we look at these issues together? How can we work on those issues together? And there the digital side I think is a really important one to, to work on. That's right, thank you very much. Again, uh, is yeah, just three very quick sure. comments. So we emphasize a lot the digital technologies as, as a disrupting technology here, but I think the problem is broader than just the digital technologies. Is any new technology here? I think we we having this creative destruction problem here. Like when you when you mentioned the construction, there is also lots of new materials, uh, and there you have the same problem here. So only focusing on digital would be the, it's, it's more general. It's really this creative destruction the failure to really address these drastic uh, innovations uh, here. Uh, with respect to digital taxation, I think the fragmentation in Europe is also a big issue here, and that was like also for regulation. So there I would again also call for much more open uh, designs of, of, of uh, regulation at the EU level, where it should be open to also future new technologies here, and not just open and, and fitting the existing technologies here. A lot of regulation is built around our existing technologies and our existing stakeholders here and therefore build an, an implicit barrier for uh, new technologies uh, here. So having a much more uh, mainstreamed approach in when we're designing regulation to be open for any new kind of technology here I think is very important to address uh, this, um, this creative destruction. Okay, thank you very much for Hilda. Okay, if there is suggest that we open up the floor for, uh, for questions, uh, we can probably uh, gather a few questions together uh, and come to so there I see now three uh, questions here. Uh, four. Okay, we have the second row, the gentleman in the second row here. Yeah. 
No, I had a couple of questions actually. First one about yeah, McKinsey. Sorry, can you introduce yourself? Oh, sorry, I'm Eric van der Merrill from eCyber, which is another think tank here in uh, Brussels. Um, now, I was curious about your thoughts about uh, labor productivity and, in particular, um, the developments of labor productivity. Because, as an economist, I would say I'm more interested in total factor productivity. I know it's much harder to measure, but I also know it's much more important for potential economic growth. And I was thinking, like, where do you have that in your calculations and how do you, do you have any thoughts on that? The second issue is about the OECD, because I agree that there is a sort of a narrow definition of technology and a more broader definition of technology. And if you apply the more broader definition of technology, such as management or competences, inevitably you're sort of moving into the more services areas. And I was thinking, what are your thoughts on the services economy? How do you perceive where future potential productivity growth uh, is coming from? Is it, in your case, or in your thoughts, still manufacturing, or is it also a long, large chunk from the services uh, economy, in particular, the sort of digital, um, uh, yeah, digital intensive services sectors? And that leads me to a third point, which is precisely on protectionism, because I think um, protectionism or Digital regulation is in particular important. For example, we have a study on European digital services and we precisely see that those economies within Europe that are digitally more protected are the ones that underperform their potential in terms of digital services trade. And I was also uh, wondering what are your thoughts on that, for example. Okay, thank you very much. There's a question there in the third row. Christian Herbert from the European Commission. I work in the private office of Commissioner Benkowska, responsible for, amongst others, the internal market, um, industrial competitiveness, these issues. Many thanks, first of all, for, for a very uh, interesting, timely discussion. Not a new discussion, I might add. Um, there are old friends here, Fabio Colasanti and others, who, who used to work on these issues in the, in the Prodi Commission. In fact, I worked with Fabio on the, on the very similar issues in the context of the Lisbon competitiveness uh, agenda. And at that time, our, our, our thinking and, and work was informed largely also by work that had been done by McKinsey, McKinsey and others. There was a famous book at the time where this McKinsey work had been summarized by Bernard Lewis into a book called The Power of Productivity, which I think is still a, still a worthwhile, worthwhile read. Very quickly, two, 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 two points. Uh, no, no issue with, uh, with, uh, with demand and digital diffusion. I think these are very relevant, uh, relevant issues. I would be a bit more cautious in assigning 50% uh, exponentiary power to these two broad categories. I think that risks to overlook one of the issues that we are, we are very much uh, uh, preoccupied by at the moment, which is Europe's uh, uh, challenges related to the allocated efficiency of our economy. I would even submit that the, that, the, that the single market today works less efficiently, less well than it did five years ago. It works less well, less efficiently today than it did ten years ago for the, for the, for the, for the product and, 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 and services markets. Now, they may be understandable post-crisis, uh, politically and, and humanly understandable uh, reasons for that, but economically very unfortunate ones. If, if this were to be the case, if this were to be true, that, that, uh, that the single market today works less well than it did five or ten years ago. This is very, very unfortunate. If you, if you then project that to the situation where we have pumped historic, historical uh, amounts of stimulus in, into the economy and the underlying 
product and services market is not allocating that stimulus to the to the to the to the best uses. I think we're talking about a very very large issue, which I would submit uh, is on a par in terms of explaining the the present uh, productivity challenges uh, on a par with the digital and, and and demand issues. By the way, applies to the U.S. as well. We we we, we too lightly look at the U.S. as a continent-wide single market for the digital economy, perhaps. But for the traditional goods and services markets, it's, it's, a, it's a patchwork, uh, subdivided at state level, just as, uh, as, uh, as is Europe. And I think the US, US is having very real uh, issues related to the allocative uh, efficiency of their economy. And you, in your presentation, put a, put a, uh, a sub-point on business concentration. Uh, and I think that's something that is worth looking into probably even more so in the US than, than in Europe. Second, second quick comment just on a possible explanation why, why we don't see the productivity uh, advances commensurate to what we, what we think we observe around us. Some of you may, uh, may from time to time uh, meet with uh, Robert Atkinson coming from the ITIF from Washington DC. He often refers to the fact that GDP, our GDP measures, have difficulties to deal with free. I think Janet was making a little bit of the, a similar point here, but the fact that, uh, that many of the, of the, of the web-based uh, applications that are clearly uh, enhancing our life quality are not, being, are not being monetized and don't show up in our, in our GDP statistics, and therefore will not, uh, will not uh, before we get the methodologies right, uh, will not show in the productivity development either. I don't really know what to do with it, to be honest, but, but I think intuitively it probably captures something and is, is, is worth looking into. But many thanks for a very timely discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's take one more question here at the front and come back. We have a little bit of time. It's Peter van der Norte from ING. Uh, I actually have two questions. Uh, first one regards uh, the structural decline in productivity. If you look at your graphs, especially for Europe, you're seeing that productivity is declining already from the 60s, 70s with some variation. So I was wondering if, if this isn't just a composition effect, uh, given the fact that uh, the weight of manufacturing has been, been declining structurally, and on average labor productivity is higher in manufacturing. So hence, with the decline of uh, the uh, manufacturing sector uh, structurally, this is, this is also reducing uh, productivity growth for the economy overall. So then my question is, okay, this, this puts the emphasis on, on, on more productivity gains in, in service and perhaps their digitization could well bring some some efficiency gains but also the need of course for the single market and services so that was one question remark second one is on uh, uh, joining a bit of the the other arguments on creative destruction from the developers and 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 the, the laggards from from the OECD and the laggard companies what you now see in Europe is a bit of a catch-22 situation for the ECB because on the one hand okay they have to keep uh, financing conditions easy which in a way stimulates more investments but on the other hand that keeps uh, some of the zombie firms alive and which probably reduces overall uh, productivity growth so that's my question how to cure that because that's not that easy so thank you Thank you very much. Why don't we uh, come back to the panel? Uh, Jan, would you like to go first? Uh, as the sure, happy to. So, uh, 
I think first on the on the question on uh, on labor productivity versus TFT. So we, we usually focus on labor productivity because that is eventually what determines income per capita, which we all care about most. Um, obviously, uh, economists very often technically look much more at uh, total factor productivity. If you decompose the things, then about half the decline was total factor productivity decline, about the other half was, was related to capital intensity growth. A bit more than half uh, TFP in the, in the US, a bit more than half capital intensity in, uh, in Europe. Um, and a lot of that actually relating also to the, to the two waves. Uh, so much of the TFP decline happened pre-crisis, much of the capital intensity decline uh, happened post-crisis. Um, so that, that's maybe on that one. Um, then on the um, shift, the longer term shifts uh, away from manufacturing, and we heard here also the, uh, the potential of services and digital services and so on. So yes, that, that has been a shift essentially since, since close to a century. It's about a 0.2 to 0.3% annual drag on productivity. Um, it, it has been playing out, playing out and has continued to play out over very long periods of time. Um, and what is often then forgotten in the debate is the shift also to highly productive services. If you think of service sectors like telecoms, including broadband provision, it is as productive or actually much more productive than manufacturing. Also, if you look at financial services, which have been growing a fair bit, they are more productive than average manufacturing. Uh, so you kind of the, the reality today is less a shift out of high productivity manufacturing into low productivity services. The, the reality today is a shift out of high productivity manufacturing into high productivity services, and that is relatively independent of whether those are digital services or traditional services. Uh, can, of course, you can add to that by going traditional. You can double the productivity once more, um, also in the high productivity services. Uh, but that, that would be one, one comment on the shift. So the, the 1960s, 19, 1950s, 1960s boom and decline, I, I would personally attribute it a little bit more to the reconstruction area, the catch-up wave to the US that has played its course uh, and, and we are unlikely to, to see again. Um, and then on the measurement, um, and the consumer surplus, I think, I haven't seen anyone disagreeing that we need better numbers. Um, I also haven't seen too many people having good ideas how to get better numbers. There's all kinds of estimates, of course, of consumer surplus uh, around. Most of them are not big enough to explain anything of the order of magnitude of the, of the decline we have seen here. Um, Few of them try to look at consumer surplus historically. I actually also am in the camp that they have become worse, but there's many people who would also argue that's great that we can 3D print uh, things for the hand now, hands, new hands for kids now, uh, but we can also keep cancer patients living for another 30 years. We can treat malaria, we can, I don't know, you go on particular in healthcare, that, that kind of consumer surplus, if you will, has been huge probably for, for the last century. And then one, maybe just one on the, and the allocative efficiency, uh, creative destruction, uh, zombie firms. I, I think that's actually something where continue to want to learn and would really want to get the uh, perspective of everyone in the audience and, and, and my co-panelists. But just as one, one thought experiment here, 
Um, assume all those zombie firms were dead. In a time where Europe has, is just about starting to close its output gap now and had massive output gaps three, four, five years ago when the discussion was hot about allocative efficiency and zombie firms. So what exactly is the cost of keeping inefficient firms alive if there's an issue with demand? That for me is kind of more as a thought rather than a well thought through quantified uh, line of argument. Interesting thought, but uh, I mean, on the zombie firms, uh, it's difficult to quantify that, yeah. right? Otherwise, we would have the answer, and, 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 you know. Uh, but, uh, but surely, if, uh, keeping, if you've decided that the firm is a zombie firm, that's not, uh, not an easy thing to do, but if you decide that some accounting says a firm is a, uh, nobody benefits from keeping it. Huh? I mean, uh, you know, Peter's question on the financing of it that makes it easier to keep it up. Uh, surely the, the issue of creative destruction that Rahil and others have raised is important here, right? I mean, so the demand that you want to generate uh, will not will be independent of whether you keep the zombie firms. So you can only benefit from re removing zombie firms, right? Uh, the question is, why don't you do it? Right? I mean, it's not an easy question, but uh, I, mean, I think it's, uh, there are other, other perhaps institutional ways of approaching the, the so how do you deal with the zombie firms, but... Um, <coughs> But I still think the issue of creative destruction is important for, um, um, for promoting innovation, for promoting productivity. Nobody benefits from keeping a firm that you've decided is zombie. Uh, others may disagree. But uh, if I may, can I come back to do, do you have sure. any, any comments on this, on some of the, uh, of the questions? Uh, no, just a couple. I, I think first, on a number of people spoke about services. and, and um, I've, I've been working on productivity for quite some time, and I, I think we should get around sort of just talking about services for services manufacturing. And we're, we're basically talking about 80% of the economy, and we're talking about services. I mean, there is so much variation here. There are some services, and I think we're finding it in some of our microdata. I mean, Kiara Criscola, one of my colleagues, is here, where services are amongst the most productive parts of the economy as well, with very high productivity growth. That's the same is true sometimes in financial services, same as sometimes true in business services. So we have some parts of the economy where there's been very high productivity growth in services. Then we have other sectors in the economy where there's been very little, partly because perhaps because we don't measure it, but where there's been very little. So I think we need to go a little bit more in detail and talk about services in a slightly different way because there's a lot of variation in services. And yes, there are some commonalities, but, but, but we need to go a little bit more detail. Um, one of the interesting things which we found when we are looking at services is that services actually seems to be part of the economy where the issue of scale seems to be having less have, have less of an impact on productivity. And uh, Chiara's team has done some interesting work on that, looking really at the micro level. And we, we typically find with manufacturing, if you have larger firms, they have much higher productivity. If you're looking at services, there are many firms where basically even smaller firms can have very high productivity already, which is interesting because it, it raises new ways about how we think about productivity. And I think we need to go a little bit in more detail there, and that's something which we're 
currently planning to do to look in much more detail in services because I think we need is to there understand. intuition behind that result? Why, um, what's the well, I, I, I think partly because particularly if you're thinking about ICT services, in a sense you can have you know you can have scale without actually having a lot of people in a company. You can have okay. firms that reach a global scale without necessarily having lots of. I mean, we have that with WhatsApp. We have that many many firms which actually have very few people working for them, but which have a global scale which are very very highly productive. So uh, there is a bit of an, uh, an issue there. I think on the measurement side, I think even going beyond the issue of consumer surplus, that part of the benefits of digital technologies that we are not picking up, there are some basic things as well, which is basically we don't measure prices very well. You know, and and uh, the issues there. Sometimes we 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 know it can be done, but it's very expensive, and and that's the big barrier I think that many statistical offices face at the moment. If you really want to measure prices in certain sectors in detail, which means you have to really adjust for quality, you'd have to do much more extensive price surveys, you have to look in much more detail to try and adjust for the fact that quality, what you can do with a technology, what you can do with a mobile phone, is a lot different than it was some time ago, then you need to invest in that. And that's not happening at the moment. So I think we, we know the tools are there, but some of that that effort, I think, that would need to be made to really pick that up in a better way is, 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 is needed. And, and last week we had a, one of our groups was looking at hedonic prices, which is basically detailed price measurement for, for mobile telephony, for instance, which is no statistical office is currently doing that, but it is an interesting area. I mean, what we can do so much more with mobile phones now than we could do 100 years or 10 years ago. But we're not picking that up very much in the price measurement. And that, of course, also has an impact then on how we measure productivity. Um, my, my, my final point, perhaps, on, on the zombie side of things, I mean, I, I do think, and, and I think it's, it's, it's a good point, and we, we actually had a, a conference at the OECD with the IMF and, and, and uh, the Bank of International Settlements in January, which was looking a little bit at some of those issues. Um, I do think, again, the issue of competition and sort of giving scope for these new companies and, and giving, creating more pressure, I think, on the zombies is one way of doing it. But, but I, I, I fully agree. I mean, there is an issue there. Thank you, Dick. Uh, Janet, any? Would you like to pick on? Um, yeah, actually, it's more just, um, I've got excellent responses from, from both panelists already. Um, and yeah, I totally agree with what you said about measurement, but obviously a lot of people are looking into this, and certainly in the UK, the person that's uh, most often, often cited about it is Diane Coyle has done a lot of work um, on this. And, it, you know, she also, you know, she's come up with various measures, um, but I think one of her broader conclusions is, is a broader one just for policy making, that just GDP is no longer an appropriate measure for setting policy, that, you know, at a minimum, a policymakers should be looking at growth in median incomes, which feeds back to your point about income inequality. You know, we get back to this idea of the law of averages, the likes of, you know, you've got a few 10 companies, I think you mentioned, um, where revenue per employee is over a million dollars. Uh, but they employ remarkably few people, and the trickle down is a lot smaller. And we've seen it in the West for a long time, and increasingly we're seeing it in parts of the emerging world as well. You know, if you call Korea an emerging economy, it's not really, but electronics, semiconductors, that's been the rapidly growing part of the economy. The trickle down into the broader economy um, is now um, a lot weaker um, as, a, as a consequence of it. But I... Um, the, the question I suppose I wanted to raise, it was a response to this one, the compositional impact of productivity. And you mentioned construction. 
as being an important sector where there is the capability, there is the technology, who knows, maybe we need a generational shift in the management of some of these firms. Um, it's quite clear that there is this generational acceptance of moving towards um, different technologies in some of these industries. Um, but you didn't mention healthcare other than in your comment regarding cancer treatments, etc. And when you look at healthcare, um, or my, my comparison of the 1990s with the last five years, education and health stand out as the two sectors that were really low productivity in the late 1990s and are really low productivity now, remarkably enough, over the last five years in the US. Surely education and health are two sectors that should be at the forefront of the next stage uh, of productivity acceleration. Is, is that fair? It's also probably the two sectors that stand out for being not only badly measured but not measured at all. It's simply at wages. So if U.S. productivity is low in education, it's just because they pay their teachers not uh, well enough. But uh, I agree. I think uh, the productivity potential there is huge. We haven't looked specifically at this effort, at those sectors in this effort, but uh, in, in many other works, it's, it's gigantic. Yeah. yeah, the opportunity is gigantic. Interesting that you raised this. But right here, your response. Yeah, I'd just like two points. So one of the composition effects, I think we need to look beyond just sectors, and particularly aggregate sectors uh, like business services or, or digital services here. We really need, need to look even within the sectors to which are really the growth segments and the composition within the sector towards these growth sectors will, will uh, matter a lot. And even beyond that, it's actually the composition of firms. Uh, here, which really make the difference. So, um, particularly, uh, so we know that that our own few uh, leading companies, new young leading companies, they do as well within their sector compared to to US or, or Chinese. But we still have not enough of them uh, here. So it's 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 the decomposition is really at the firm level, not so much at the sector level. Here, it's missing the right drivers of at the firm level, which will create the, the growth of opportunities and you so I would not focus too much on sector it's really much more generic and structural it's missing the companies at the frontier uh, not having enough of them and then another point is actually a question <laughs> to you Jan. so we were discussing um, the fusion of technologies why is there this lack of adoption here and also the fusion of management practices actually the sector of business of consulting is, is actually helping companies to adopt the latest technologies and adopt the latest management practices do you have some responsibility here? Why our companies are not? Maybe over a coffee. Okay, but we have we have a little time for one round of questions. There were questions here on Marek, uh, there and there. Yeah. Okay. Oh, and one of them. Okay, we'll just take four questions and then come up there. I have two comments. Uh, one is on demographic. You will uh, touch up on this topic when we talk about investment, uh, aging factor, but I think it may go much further, not only volume and structure of investment, but probably also impact on the TFP and definitely impact on volume and, and structure of labor force. And uh, one can say that uh, European or, for example, Japan economy uh, when they face uh, physical shortage of labor, this uh, may boost them to um, uh, automation, robotization, 
But I'm not sure that this kind of forced substitution really will help in improving PFP, especially in global scale. The second comment concerns exactly this problem of global allocation of resources. In 1990s, we had some important, I would say, reform in global scale, like like successful completion of Wirant or rapid financial globalization or inclusion of large part of developing world like China, India, Latin America, former communist bloc to the global value chains, but not so much progress since then. And when you mentioned, for example, um, political uncertainty, I would translate this also in increasing trade barriers, even if I would say the current rate of protectionism uh, will not materialize still if investors look forward, they may be not sure about this and they may, you know, add to some cost of, of trade costs. So, and also, most of this um, uh, global trade uh, deals, they only marginally touch the sec uh, service sector. Of course, financial services were part of globalization, but man many service sectors were not. So, so I Thank would you, like to uh, see your comments on this. Thank you, Martin. One question for Yeah, James Watson, Business Europe. I wanted to come back with a perspective on this on this zombie firm question, not least because some of them probably pay my salary. Um, I mean, I think I think well, we might. I think I think most people wouldn't deny that, particularly in some member states, there's an issue around capital markets and foreclosure. But the obvious question, and we hear this zombie story all the time. The obvious question that comes to me, to, to, to what extent is the, is the, is the long tail in firms essentially representing the long tail in skills? So essentially these firms are essentially, they're, they're employing low skilled people in, in, in regions in probably with, with quite cheap rents, etc. So to come back to your point exactly, you, you, you know, you're employing low skilled people in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a deprived region, you know, is that not efficient? Are you not doing the best with, the, with, these, firm, with, with these people? You're employing low-skilled people in the best way possible, in the most productive way possible. Yes, in, in the global sense, they may look low productivity, but is that not efficient? So as I say, the question is to what extent is, 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 the, is the firm um, distribution simply representing the skills distribution? <laughs> okay, thank you. The question at the back. Hello, thank you very much. Uh, I'm, I'm going um, to go aside of zombie and GDP measures, but uh, I'd like to know whether I understood you well. Uh, when you're, uh, I have the feeling that your presentation is telling us basically what we have made in the last 10 years, politically speaking, is wrong. Basically, you told us that public investment is too low. We have cut public investment because of you know austerity measures all around Europe. And you have told that there is not enough demand, and you translated it uh, rightly as a wage share declining for the last 30 years. And we have been told in the last 10 years we are not competitive enough. Then you have to decrease wages to make structural reforms and stuff like that. Then I, ju I just wanted to, to, to ask you whether the structural change which we ask is to have much higher wages in the wealth produced, or better income distribution, and to have a, a reform of the European Monetary Union uh, having a European Treasury for public investment as a way to escape the straitjacket of the 70 year growth pact. 
If I'm not wrong, uh, to be honest, your analysis is fitting very really well, the union uh, Chilean calls. Okay, thank you very much. Two quick questions that here and we'll come back to the gentleman there. You don't have to react to everything, there's a lot here. Thank you. Kundulus, BMP Paribas Fortis. I thought a remark about how to improve diffusion is, is, is very, yeah, Good remark, but my question is, we are living today, I have the impression more and more in a winner-take-all economy. So, you see more and more monopolies. So how are you going to diffuse? How are you going to go to more diffusion? You have a more monopoly of data. How are you going to see that this data is shared to other companies? Every time when there is competition, these big companies, these GAFAs, they buy the other companies. So, how do you see in practice this diffusion? Thank you very much. And one last question here. We come back to the. Uh, hello, uh, Jeroen, a PhD student of uh, at KU Leuven. I have uh, one more question about TFP. What's not mentioned yet is that TFP, for a large extent, are markups of firms. That's also comprised in this measure of your ignorance, what we don't know, we cannot explain by labor and capital. But let's then do a thought experiment about the allocative efficiency that's been mentioned before. So we close down these zombie firms, and then there are a few firms that remain, and since the TFP is a weighted average, then you have highest efficiency of productivity growth in the aggregate. But is this what you want, a few monopolies? Um, maybe not. Uh, it's not without a reason that maybe the government, after the Great Recession, they introduced labor hoarding. Uh, so all firms can now do labor hoarding, which means that they can like keep their employees without paying them. And uh, maybe this is good if demand picks up again, then these zombie firms can pick up demand again and then they, they can contribute to our economy. So do you want allocative efficiency to increase to the extent that a few firms remain and we have monopolies? And then the second short one, is about the rigid labor market. I have a friend who did a, who has a startup. He has two employees in Belgium, but he has like three, uh, like last year he had five programmers in Uzbekistan, and this year he has 15 programmers in Uzbekistan. But it will seem like he didn't grow at all because his labor is cheap labor was elsewhere. So the labor market is rigid and more expensive than in the U.S. Isn't this also a problem from a policy point of view? What can be done with it? Thank you very much. So we're going to give Jan the last word. So why don't we start from this side of, of Jan? Okay. Yeah. So on zombie Just firms. Yes, need to be. So zombie firms. I think we really need to be careful what we how we define zombie firms. Zombie firms are not necessarily firms that use low skills. Uh, if you look at the Uber drivers, they're all low skill, but that's not a zombie firm uh, at all here. So it's it's really. Do you employ skills, low, high skills, whatever, at the most efficient way relative to what the technology in your sector allows to you? Uh, so that's a zombie firm uh, here. And there I think we have all the incentives to have the type of firms that use the latest technologies, why not, to be the most efficient in how they use the resources. Because if they don't <coughs> use it efficiently, they eat away the resources for the other more efficient firms here. So that's why we want to get rid of zombie firms. But that doesn't mean that kills all the low skills skilled uh, labor here, but it, it utilizes the low skills in a much more efficient way 
outside zombie frames. Uh, so I would not want to mingle the zombie frames with the low skill or, or the quality discussion uh, too, too much uh, here. In terms of, of, of monopolies and winner-take-all uh, and the diffusion, um, of course, there are economies of scale that lead into much more larger firms here, but that doesn't necessarily mean pure monopolies here. So you have a few players, but the competition between these players can be very strong and very tough, even more than, than in some markets where you have plenty of, of companies here. So should not focus too much on, on the number of firms, is on the intensity of competition, the contestability of the market, uh, and not just only the existing firms, but also the threat of new entrants, new technologies, and it's all these different dimensions you need to take into account to realize uh, how monopolized a sector is uh, here and what the effects of that monopoly would be uh, here. Right, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, just, uh, just two reactions. One, one is on James. Good to see you again, James. It's been a while. Um, on, on, on the firm level distribution, I, I, I think that's an issue where if, if you look across countries, I think um, there are some countries where the firm level distribution does have a much longer tail than others, and the question is a little bit, well, why is that the case? Is that because of skills, or is it perhaps because of lack of competitive pressure, or is it because of very fragmented markets? And I think, uh, again, you can't sort of, looking at policy and trying to give policy advice, well, this is the best way of doing it, but I do think you can see it as an, as an, as an area where perhaps you need to look at in terms of saying, well, we need more competitive pressure, but perhaps, perhaps this is one of the reasons why this, this, there's this part of the economy which is lagging. Um, I, I think the, for, on, on markups, uh, we're doing a lot of work at markups, and I know Leuven has done some work on that recently as well. I mean, Kara's just done a, on, a, on a paper. We do see them rising as well, particularly in digitally intensive sectors, so we do uh, see them picking up. The real question is a little bit, why is this occurring? Is it because of winner-take-all? Is it because of winner-take-most? Is it because of lack of competition? Or is it basically because that's the structure of these types of industries? And, and, and I think that's the real big question for competition policy people. Is it really because there is no threat of entry here anymore? Is it because we're trying to get getting to monopolies? Or is there still a threat of entry, but this is a market which has very large network effects and, 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 and very high economies of scale, and that's why you get these markets. So that's a tricky issue, and I think that's where the competition policy discussion is, is a very careful one at the moment, and saying, well, we need to tread carefully in this area, but it's usually important. Um, then, then finally, I think, agreeing with Reinilda is, uh, I don't think it's about sort of getting rid of all the zombies and then we'll get monopolies. I, I think we need to try and sort of see, well, let's try to look at, make sure that we have enough resource allocation going on in the economy, that also that people who are stuck in some of these firms can eventually find a job, hopefully in a, in a, in a, in a firm where they can have higher wages and where they can have more productive labor. Uh, because I think that's another element of this, in the sense that you also have people who are stuck in firms where they uh, get very low wages, get very little pay, uh, where probably we might be better off if trying to sort of re uh, move them and, and try to see what we can do, do that. So I, I think that that's another dimension here, which I think is important to keep in mind. Thank you, Mr. Uh, yes, I completely endorse what you just said and um, lifelong skills training. Um, the days that we could all just go and do our degrees um, and do a job for life are, are long gone. And it's one of the areas that have been cut back in government policy so, and by firms. So that's where the development needs to be. So you can have the rest of the three minutes to take all the other questions. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um. 
Is that your heart? What's that? What's that? What's that? Like the, the, the signal that we have to end the session, I guess. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I think maybe rather than going into the individual questions you have already answered and, and take many of, of, of them, my, my, my sense is this, this discussion is a great reminder how complex an issue productivity growth, the, the, the slowdown of that is. I think there's lots of explanations, many things that need to happen. Uh, both on the explanatory side, starting with better measurement, um, as, as well as on the policy side. Um, we want to emphasize, or we came out to emphasize after our analysis in this, this work with digital diffusion, or maybe more precisely, accelerating the digital transition so that we get faster through this curve where the adoption starts, the potential is huge, but the real the reality and the numbers, not only in terms of measurement, but also on the ground, is not yet there because of the transition costs and lags. And on the other hand, um, not forgetting the demand side of productivity, which is not necessarily the most um, emphasized textbook element of looking at productivity, to put it this way. And I think you challenged us to uh, have bolder proposals, and I think maybe just as a reminder in terms of what was actually on the slide, uh, it did have elements like completely overhauling land markets, which is probably so bold that it has never been tried. It did have elements like raising public investment, which comes back to actually completely changing the uh, fiscal framework in the EU. So I think if you dig deeper behind what it actually means, uh, or give it more money to people who would actually spend it, what that means for either social redistribution or changing wage rates, um, I'm not sure it's the lack of boldness. I think it's more that we will probably not be bold enough to implement. Okay, well, on that note, uh, then, I mean, thank you very much for, for a very fruitful uh, uh, report and lots to think about, not, uh, not easy solutions, but lots, certainly lots to think about. Thank you for taking the time to come and, and present the report here. And a very big thank you also to the panelists, to Janet and Dirk and Ray Hilda for, for your thoughts on the issue. I'm sure we will have more events on, on the productivity puzzle behind it. But for the moment, that's all we have time for. Thank you for joining us, and please join me in thanking my panelists.